I suppose when listeners think of Charles Eames, they think of the chair. They think of molded plywood shell and a revolution, perhaps, and the way in which people sit. Think, perhaps, of a base in which a minimum of material is used for maximum effect. Yeah, Charles Eames has been described, I'm sure, aptly so, as perhaps the most brilliant of America's designers all around. He's more than a designer, philosopher, and educator, too. Where do we begin with Charlie Eames and his outlook on life? I mean, I know you recently came from India. Where there you were working with, I understand, with with the children and uh, approach to education. Where do we begin? Your, your view of life is what? <laughs> uh, no, actually, Ray and I had been in India about ten years ago. While Ray, uh, Mrs. Eames. That, that's correct. Uh, when the Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, was still alive and we're working on a program with him uh, there. That time we were there for about six months and the... Uh, the assignment uh, itself was, was intriguing enough to sort of not only cause us to make the trip, but uh, give us food for a lot of thought ever since. And that was, the question really was, what, what can we, India, in that case, do to, uh, to keep to in some way curb the tendency for the quality for our environment to disintegrate. Now this is a this is a question. I mean, just to clarify, the question is interesting enough. So that that's what started the whole thing, and we indeed did go and spend some time there, and perhaps find that found really that that uh, we could see almost more clearly there some of the problems that existed here, and if did anything for us, probably. Well, suppose we expand on this just a bit. You and Mrs. Eames, Rames, you went to India at the request of the then Prime Minister Nehru. Something, and, and you saw something in India that also clarified problems in America. Is that it? Yeah. Well, yeah. the first part, uh, the, the problems of human beings are much more alike the problems of other human, human beings than they are different. And I suppose the 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 difference uh, was that in in a place like India, the problems are just a little bit clearer. What was some of your experience specifically? Uh, what was your was there a job you had to do when you came there? Or what was or what is it you saw? What specifically was your your errand or work? Well, if if one is uh, one is uh, asked to to sort of help curb the tendency of an environment to disintegrate. Well, first of all, you take a look around and see what the environment is. And, uh, and in, in uh, doing so, I find that, for the most part, most of the things that are causing it to disintegrate, which are, are the very much the same things that are causing our landscapes to turn into Los Angeleses and things like that, except that uh, the scale is very, very large, and uh, uh, because of the richness of their own past, why the results at the first glance seem even more disastrous. What did you? So here, here's a here's a, a rich past in India. You're talking now about maybe urbanization, the march of technologies against this. You got overpopulation. Well, no, I'm poverty. talking about for the most part just. Uh, uh, Choices. You have a people of a traditional society, like in India, who 
in their lives or in the lives of any of their ancestors have actually had no opportunity at any point to make a choice. Each act was sort of preordains a very specific subsequent act. And if a person is uh, going to, he does, decides to get married, why a whole series of prescribed acts are put into to, uh, work if he decides that he's going to do anything. Each thing is prescribed. Now, as a result, why, what, he, what is prescribed, what is done, is often very beautiful and very elegant and very appropriate. And you say, how do these people happen to be able to choose a fabric that so matches their skin, tie it in such a way that so matches their gait of walk? And it has been no choice at all. They've done this. But this is also true of anything that our culture has done in the past. However, you introduce communication, you introduce a choice, and now that same person has a choice of wearing a sari from Madras, Calcutta, or Bombay, and often that sari is not as appropriate to their skin. It is not as appropriate to their walk. And they find that a tin tray takes the place of a brass lota, and it is not as appropriate, or it is not as beautiful. The very fact that they have a choice where they did not have a choice is essentially the thing that causes the change. Of course, uh, Charles, seems you're raising perhaps one of the paradoxes of our day, aren't you? The fact that thanks to technology and man's inventiveness and more choice, there is also the choice to choose wrongly, where in the past, uh, where there was less choice, instinctually something right was chosen. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right, and I couldn't state it any better than, than you have. The fact is that there are very few appropriate rich and good choices, there are an infinite number of bad choices. Well, <laughs> well where does this leave us then? Now, this, this raises a, this is a terrible dilemma, isn't it? No, I, I, I think as soon as, as soon as you begin to discover the dilemma, it ceases to be terrible. It's terrible when you don't know about it. So that, first of all, the recognition of it. First is recognition exactly. that there is a problem. Exactly, and, and the, the clutter that we find uh, around ourselves today is often the result of not only being able to choose, but having to choose and not have any background. What formed a beautiful village of Salem, Massachusetts in the 17th century was just the fact that they, they too had actually had no choices. And I think that naturally the great hope is to be able to, to, uh, to structure our own future in such a way that, that our own tradition may become a, a tradition of structuring the problem, of the restraints, because you suggested, which is absolutely true, that the things that have made things rich and beautiful are more often the restraints than the freedoms. And this, I think, is the, sort of the essence of it. So there's a question of tradition that is rich, at the same time, Charles Eames certainly is not saying, let us go back to the past. We can't do that because of man's other discoveries, but not to lose that which is good of the past. There's a continuity here somewhere that is in danger sure. of being cut. Right. And I, I think you, you, what I'm, I'm suggesting is that we look, look, if we look into the past for the very reasons that made it rich, we'll find that those reasons are, they were rich by reasons of the, re the restraints 
as well as other richnesses. And then when we look into that tradition, we then must look forward to our own tradition. And, and we're, this is exciting, these are exciting times. We're in the business of making traditions the today. And it's because we know more about what makes a good cracking plant, for example, than we know about city halls, that at this moment of our society, a, an oil cracking plant is apt to turn out to be more beautiful than a city hall. We have an, a, a tradition at this moment for oil cracking plants, but we haven't discovered the new one for city halls. Yeah, oh, something else is funny. It's almost, uh, there's a double level on what you just said, it seems to me, unless I'm imagining, that we've learned so many new ways of working with things and making things serve people we still haven't worked that because you know, I, I think of City Hall, where man makes laws. Uh, you may not have thought of that, but I was just thinking of that. I mean, that to say we still haven't learned a way which man can work with man. You see, we haven't advanced yet in man's relationship to man as against man's relationship to things. You follow me? I, I, mean, I yeah. follow you. I, yeah. I honestly, when when one thinks about it, I, I, I and thinks of our the state of our society at this moment, as even compared to what it was uh, 50 years ago, I must confess I'm little even optimistic about man's relation to, to, to man. I do think, however, man's relation to man is so complex that you can't pinpoint or you can't measure the values, we haven't learned to at least, as much as we can, let's say, those values or needs the case whether it's the cracking plant or the the, the fusion plant. This is interesting, uh, Charles. You, you take an, an affirmative viewpoint here. This is a, a refreshing approach, too, because so often we, we're told that we pretty much uh, have had it. We can handle things, but not man. And yet, you mentioned Salem, a beautiful city, yet Salem was a city of the witches, too. Well, it, I, I suppose in mentioning it, uh, I was half conscious, I was partially conscious of, of this other aspect because in many respects uh, it, it sort of points up the fact that much of the, the richness that we look back on in the past was really accompanied by horror, horror in another dimension. And, and uh, so that Salem almost became an instinctive yeah, yeah. example of that because you very said Salem instinctively. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. I, you didn't say Williamsburg. You said Salem. Yeah, I said I yeah. said Salem, and and I'm sure that it is partially related to that because I'm very I'm very conscious of that. Coming back to India, there's so many aspects of Charles Eames' uh, life and approach. But come back to India, you and your wife there. In India was a parable, well, a large, over, outsized parable of U.S. You were seeing India's problem, you're also seeing U.S.'s problem a different way, but the problem the same. Yeah, the parable is a nice way to put it. Yeah. Did you find, were there experiences you recall, was something specific that you were able to uh, to see, to envision, you and your wife there? Or, uh, well, uh, ex uh, because of something we were spe speaking of uh, earlier, I would say one, one shocking shocking experience was uh, to walk into a small village way in the south in the, the point of peninsula where where people are quite primitive and the color of their skin is actually very very black but to be greeted 
I had already begun to felt that I, that I felt that I looked like something that had crawled out from under a rock. One gets to feel that way. But to walk into the presence of a small child, have the ch small child look at me and vomit, this is an interesting experience, you know, to, to have just the, the color of my own skin sort of be so pallid and horrible by comparison would cause a child to do that. It, it sort of gives you pause, you know, you wonder about this. Let's talk uh, about this for a minute. It was interesting. Here was this little black child who saw this pale face, and your appearance was so strange, so perhaps horrible to the child, you know, that the child vomited. Well, it, it's just yeah. an example yeah. of certain yeah. relative, yeah. Uh, you know, relative uh, uh, val values. I don't know even why. Why it, it, it's almost an irrelevant point. Well, a little it, bit uh, more. Is, is it irrelevant? I'm well, sorry. it's yeah. irrelevant because it begins to place. It may. It sounds as though I'm particularly conscious of the manner in which the color of my own skin was received. I'm not that particular. That, that no, I'm thinking about of reversal. I'm thinking about the fear of sure. the stranger, fear the, of the uh, no, it's, different... No, I think it's interesting. The, the other another thing was that, that in, in a place like India, where where there's uh, so there is a quite a bit of, uh, of d deprivation of one, one kind of, uh, of another, including uh, hunger and... Uh, uh, there was naturally there is a tendency, and there's a tendency, particularly for any American, to be sort of horrified at the sight of any sort uh, anything of terms of disease, hunger, or someone apparently dying in the streets. And uh, it was pretty quickly pointed out to me that that uh, that I was horrified, or one might be horrified, to see this happen, but very often it's a result of the fact that we are, or there's a point of view by which you can look at it, where you realize that we are outraged by the fact that this happened to happen within our sight. And the real question is, how much of it is happening within the whole country or within the whole whole world? And that that we as a people, I'm speaking of Europeans, Westerners, are so geared that if anyone has the effrontery to die within our vision, we insist that something be done about it right now. If they happen to die out of our sight, or if 50,000 people die out of our sight, why, we're completely isolated from that, and it means nothing. Now, this is a sort of a great lesson. I'm not explaining it very well, but it was sort of a quite well. a, a great, yeah. great lesson, and at that point, you viewed sort of suffering or deprivation in a different way. It, it actually forced one to attempt to view it in an objective way as an example. And the thought of its being an affront to us personally, to have that happen within our vision, you know, is a, uh, this is a pretty humiliating idea. You know? Humiliating, and that, I suppose, with all the superhighways in our country, that uh, as people head to the suburbs, they do not see the slums of our city, too, in the way that's related, you know. So there is no affront yeah. Uh, yeah. and, in a perverse way, appeal to conscience. I, I must, I must uh, hasten to, to say that with deprivation, I would be careful to not use immediately the word miserable because uh, one, of the, one of the great, great lessons in many, uh, many 
other corners of the earth where there is poverty and deprivation, why you find that that indeed misery is not necessarily uh, the companion of poverty, and uh, uh, this the reasons for this of of, of course uh, are, are complex, I suppose, but it seems on one hand that that what happens, for example, to an Indian child or an American Indian child in a traditional farm as far as that's concerned, what happens to those children in the very first years of their training, the information that sort of comes to them sort of may not be very great in amount, but it forms a kind of a coherent ball that sort of protects them under all kinds of conditions, as long as those conditions conform to sort of the pattern of their society. It protects them in a way that through all kinds of trials, they can avoid much, they may suffer, but they won't necessarily be miserable. They take their own belongings, they order their own life in relation to this deprivation. And I think this is a great, great lesson, because I am, a, I am all for the attack on poverty. I do feel, however, that there will perhaps in this world be more poverty before there's less. I don't know how we can duck it. So I think that one one valuable attempt might be to, at the same time that we attack poverty itself, that we attack those things that make people misery within the framework of poverty. And this might be a very helpful thing, because in we've had our problems in Los Angeles and Watts, and this was a, a horrible thing. I hope it was as much of a lesson as it was horrible, and that people can profit by it, because there People were deprived, but they were also miserable. There was nothing, nothing in their early training that taught them to cope with deprivation or with, with, with riches as far as that's concerned. They just did not know how to order their life. And I am sure uh, that as sort of it seems to be a popular, growing popular idea today, the effect of those those uh, early years, but there's so much evidence in favor that if, if at all, it could get to these young in those early years. Isn't the word really despair? That is, despair you found in Watts, but not despair of the same kind of the Indian community. I, I suppose else. this is a, an inter, yeah. uh, interchangeable uh, word, and I, because I do think that despair and misery are separate from uh, deprivation and and hunger are the kind of even pain that comes from that. It's a cliche, as well, a certain as a, a, a spiritual richness. I hate to use that word with 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 economic poverty. Yet, in a way, you're saying that there was a, a protectiveness in a way that that had something. Well, it's a, it was a sense of ordering the life, ordering their own life, and they became they were. But but the 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 point. Point is, I think this we we need that as much uh, within our opulence as we do yeah. within our areas of poverty. So this isn't this isn't restricted uh, uh, alone to no. that. Of course, there's a, obviously there's a spiritual poverty in many quarters mm -hmm. where yes, the ranch house yes, is there with every appliance. And the there, you know, one of the one of the the things that we miss the most, especially in in sort of in the training of the young is just the ability to care, to care for simple things and have a real concern for things outside of themselves. And that ability to be 
have concern. I'm now thinking about more or less our own yeah. problems, not the problems. You've just raised it. Now, of course, you've come to, I think, one of the cores we have to bite into is learning to feel, to care. Uh, that is, you don't care about someone else, you care about yourself. It's not too, too deep either, really. Now, if this is so, yet you feel pretty up, you feel, you, you, earlier I sensed a sort of uh, an optimistic feeling on your part about man's relation to man, you know, we, 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 uh, yeah. and yet you sense there's a, a little callousness too. I don't, uh, or, or am I wrong? No, I think that this, the, these are, are, are both true. We've been talking about two things. Yeah. We've been talking about a kind of richness that we have lost that existed in the past. I think we've sort of, we've sort of pointed out the fact that though this richness was really not a function of man's choice in the first place, so it's not that man has become less sensitive. The situation has changed. Prior to, in other times, he really had no choice. It was a thing that was enriched bit by bit, slowly, slowly, over a long period of time. He has sort of been robbed of that just because everything is mixed up in a sort of a communications melange and, and everything. He has all kinds of choice. He's asked to do now something that he's never been able to, to do. So that there he's the charge is generally leveled at man that he is no longer he is no longer uh, concerned or no longer sensitive to these things. I don't believe that that's true. I think the situation is different. He's called upon to have sort of an objective and rational concern, which he has perhaps never had before in the history of man. So it's not... Uh, then, on the other side of the, the coin, as far as man's relationship to man, well, God, I think the evidences are all in favor of tremendous strides, sort of despite the greatest horror of the century, or of uh, times, as I know. Well, no, I don't. The H-bomb, I believe me, uh, uh, if you're going to rate horror, why, it falls well below the six million Jews well, that both. were killed. I, mean, I, I, I don't think it's a question of one or the oh, other. All right. The, the H-bomb is sort of a, it's, it's something that, that seems to be a function of the development of a society, many of which are not happy, some of which are tragic. But damn it, you know. That thing that happened with those six million Jews is something else. You know, this is this is the great horror of that is, you know, you you look around among your own and under stress and strain wonder if it could ever happen. The H bomb is something something else. We were up against something we kinds of judgments we had never known before. I I secretly have the nightmare that uh, when I realize, you know, you're the question. Would we have ever dropped it on a, on a, you know, a European nation? You know, on a well, exactly. This is. Would we have ever done that? You know, this this we've always thought and about. And then Simone de Beauvoir says, you know, she says the French who we fought so hard against the Germans, horrified by the concentration camps, did it to the Algerians. And I don't want to extend the parallels, but <laughs> go ahead. But uh, but there's a. Well, yeah. it, but in, in spite of all this, yeah. people's relation to people, Jesus, if we can keep on at the rate we've been going, well, I think that we couldn't ask any more. Despite this, this is the part about Eames, of course, that's quite uh, 
remarkably refreshing because you're, you're, it's your overall outlook of this. How'd this begin? Because obviously you were called by Nero, you and your wife, for certain reasons. He knew you were a certain kind of person. This has to come back to you now. You went to a school, Cranbrook right. School, didn't you, in Michigan? Yes. With the Saranens, didn't you? Well, to, to say, this was, this was sort of one of those, those uh, later in life returns to... Uh, I had, uh, by that time, I had already been practicing architecture for, oh, four years or so. And I came, came back to, with the understanding that, with, uh, Aliel, that I would just, uh, this just... This is, uh, Saarinen Sr. Aliel Saarinen, yes, Sr., who, by the way, came directly from Finland to Chicago after, uh, winning the second prize in the Chicago Tribune competition. And it was one of those seconds that probably had more influence on sort of architecture in this country and world than, than almost any other competition. But uh, I, I had come to, to, uh, to Cranbrook to read for what I, I, I wanted to start to try to make up for a short a short-lived formal education by reading for six months. Well, I started to do that, and then Aero came back from the East where he'd been working. The sun. The sun. And then we started working together, and then I started the the design school within the school and worked with Aero and Aliel. In this school, I want to go back to beginnings, which are before before the since we were with Cranbrook, there was a certain uh, philosophy of education. There wasn't there. Was it involved every uh, the student being aware of all aspects of craftsmanship? And oh, yes, of course. Elia was a remarkable man. He was one of the the great. Elia was was a, a a great architect. In in some ways, in many ways, we would perhaps say. Aero was a better architect, but Elio was a great man in the old, in the sense of the traditional sense of the great man. He was, a, of course, he's a friend of, of Mannerheim's. He had, he had worked in, in Finland. He was one of the first to develop the concept of a, of a satellite uh, city. And when he came to this country and did some work on the Chicago uh, master plan, he then, by the son of George Booth, and George Booth was a publisher of the Scripps Booth uh, papers in, in Detroit, agreed to go there and help farm the academy. It was a girls' school, a boys' school, and an academy. Now, schools, have, like other things, have vintage years, and there turned out to be, at this time of which I speak, a sort of vintage year at Cranbrook, because at Cranbrook, simultaneously with the return of Aero, I was sort of the you know, a Yankee doodle dandy Middle West boy up from St. Louis. I sort of arrived there. Florence Schust, who later became Florence Knoll, was, was, came in there from Michigan. Harry Batoya was there at that, that moment. He was a, uh, working in uh, metals. Uh, and Harry Weiss, who is now one of the Chicago architects, Chicago was a young, bright-eyed a uh, young intellectual who arrived there and sort of added a uh, lot to Jack Spaeth, who was the head of city planning, uh, Ed Bacon who uh, of, of Seattle, Ed Bacon, who is now a 
very famous city planner in Boston uh, was there, and uh, Marianne Stringal, a famous uh, 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 weaver and textile person. So these were the vintage years of Cranbrook. There were about and three in years. The, in the, in at the school there was this. Uh, I suppose there was a certain vision, wasn't there? I mean, there was ex there were exchanges, of course, back and forth. But were the students the students were concerned with many aspects of uh, of craftsmanship, weren't they? Well, the uh, the architects Harry Weiss, for example, was he was both weaving and potting along with doing some extraordinary architecture. Ralph Rapson, who was a head, who was builder of, we built many embassies around, and he was now head of the architectural school of Minnesota. Ralph was there. He was a fantastic draftsman. But this was, it was a small school, and the, those that I have mentioned sort of make up about what was about 80% of the student body. <laughs> so that it was uh, yeah. a remarkable. What led to Charles Eames being the man he is, the outlook you have, well, what led you to India, you know, uh, what led you to Cranbrook, what led you to making of a certain kind of chair, revolutionizing, if you will, seating uh, positions of people, or the house you and your wife built from just factory-made material in Santa Monica, isn't that right? Ray was there, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can't, after all, you can't spend a few years working with uh, Aero and, and Aliel and... Uh, just drop off to doing nothing, you know. Well, where did this begin? You, you mentioned St. Louis. Is it, was, was it St. Louis where it began? Are you from St. Louis? Well, if you're, if you're speaking of uh, sort of biological beginnings, yeah, I was <laughs> conceived on the banks of the Mississippi. That <laughs> it's a Mississippi product like Mark Twain. Anyway, Twain has an outlook and Eames has an outlook, and I would suspect not too different, just a hunch I've got that you're looking for that man. So w was it, uh, what is it you wanted to be? Wh where came this, this impulse? Was it always, what, designing, uh, craftsmanship? You, know, you, you, you speak of these impulses like those old, the cartoons where somebody would light an electric <laughs> light bulb <laughs> over like somebody. Yeah. The sudden idea, sudden inspiration. No, yeah, I'm sure why, no I, uh, I think that I, I am, uh, I am probably because my father was a much uh, much older man than uh, I was, which is not, of course, in itself unique. But the the degree to which he was older was probably as in excess of most cases. And uh, being raised in a sort of a St. Louis French family with that was uh, had largely uh, sort of women in the background, uh, sort of I. I sort of m became closer to being a 19th century guy than is normal. Now, I think that often helps. I think there was something about the 19th century that worked pretty well. All my early reading was pure 19th century. So this this probably helps. The idea that perhaps, uh, you know, before the big sweep of technology, which of which you were part two, the man, you, mean the, you spoke of 19th century, the fact that someone could do something himself, making the whole shoe. I suspect this, uh, I, that at the, in the instant I didn't have uh, this in mind, but that has a, probably a lot to, to do with it. Because the thing that impressed me, for example, yesterday, or meeting with the industrial designers as a group. Now, I am a, a member of the organization, but in many respects I do feel that as a group, 
they are they're serving the art in a much more literal and a more realistic way than 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 I am. I uh, they they sort of they deal with a kind of problems at a scale which well I haven't haven't uh, avoided, but it's it's more realistic in that that sense. They don't, as a rule, do everything themselves. I do a fair amount myself just because I, I consider it a, a selfish trait more than a laudable one and when we make films I probably actually shoot about 80% of the footage myself I operate the, operate the camera I do that because I want to partially partially because it saves having it redone three times <laughs> but the fact is that you take part you mentioned films I think you've been here again. You're experimenting, pioneering. You, you've been working in three-dimensional films too, haven't you? Well, uh, three-dimensional in that we 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 sort of use enough projection and screens to have to put it into three dimensions rather than two. But I again, I I don't I don't think of it myself as experimental. I think of experimental as another kind of thing. Now, this isn't modesty. It's just sort of a description of the thing. I use film more or less to to uh, to actually accomplish something fairly specific. In other words, the film I use in any way I can, which may result at times in experiment, but I don't set out to make an experimental film. The thing at IBM World's Fair in New York is is it has features that are, of course, are, are, are new, but they're new because it took some new things to accomplish what we wanted to do. And I think that's something other than, than experimentation.